Aspire to dream. Aspire to achieve. Aspire to lead. Aspire to forge your own path. I'm Josh Booth, and on behalf of the Aspire team, I want to welcome you to Chapter 2 of Aspire, the story of an entrepreneur, with our special guest, Edward Crawford, and our host, Thomas Kelly. Chapter 2 begins with the Crawford Rule on Rejection. Then we go on a nostalgic trip over more than 100 years to the modest home of his Irish ancestors and the story of his mother's dream to escape the impoverished life in rural Ireland and her amazing odyssey to make that dream come true. Here is Aspire Chapter 2, Coming to America. Everyone faces rejection. That means the word no, no, no. You're too, you're too short. You're too this. You're too that. You're not too. The rejection is a big part of it. So a lot of people have a lot of problems with rejection. You, everyone has problems with rejection. So entrepreneurship is, in an essence, a life study. If you come at me with negative on the outside of that mic over there, you came at me with something that I felt as soon as it, you phrased the words, it wouldn't get as far as the center of the table, and I'd be up with my wall. Because I don't accept it. No negativity. No, none. You can turn that rejection into energy. How do you do that? Practice. You can actually turn, take rejection yeah. and turn it around Yeah. and make it a good thing. Yeah. You can learn to block it, intercept it, okay, and turn it. Blocking it is easy to understand. But first, you've got to recognize that rejection is the enemy. How do you turn that into energy? In my particular case is... Maybe it's just my attitude that says, I'll show you. I'll show you. It's a simple, it's some form of I'll show you. Mm-hmm. You can train yourself to do. Mm-hmm. If nothing else, if you can't even turn it in, you're not going to let it be destructive. You're not going to make it, you're not going to compromise your thinking. You're not going to be beaten about. You're not going to be embarrassed. You're not going to cry. You're not going to go not eat. And you know, you're not going to go out and have another Guinness because you've just taken care of that. So you can take that rejection and kind of for yourself, take it as a challenge. Oh, you think I can't do it? Wait a second. I'm competing with myself. Mm -hmm. And competing with yourself takes courage because when you make a mistake, you're fully responsible and it hurts. Mm -hmm. You know? So, yeah, there is a certain percentage of people. That's that's the person that we want to make into the right guard or put on the team that wants to be on the team. Everyone wants to be a winner. And they want to be a winner. They want to go home and say hey, things that were good. It's like the woman I told you that Troy in uh, Troy Sunshade. You know, let me go home and get my children and bring them back to show them yeah. that I mean something. Come That's on, another good story. We got to get to that. Well, I do uh, want. How's that about the rejection? You want to talk more about rejection? No, right? but I'm just saying it, it, that's part of it. We got other things to talk about. Okay, there came this time. I just see this as uh, such a trauma, and I wonder if this was a first big lesson in how you can turn rejection around. Your father that you were so close to, and in a way, you, you were like an apprentice to your father, and you worked shoulder to shoulder in his business, and he must have taught you a lot. And then all of a sudden, the day comes where he's just, he says, I, I just have to leave. I have to go on. I have, I have my dream. The days and weeks after he left where you stood up to help your mom keep the family together, in the back of your mind and in your heart, 
What were you thinking in those days when your father was gone and you were struggling? You had to work really hard and get a couple of different jobs just to keep things going with your mom. What were you thinking about? Um, you're good. This is a very powerful question. And it's gonna give, I'm going to give you an answer that it is not known. That was my stepfather I was talking about. Hmm. It wasn't my real father. And that was never discussed, that he was your stepfather? Everything was just, as far as anyone else knew, he was your father? That's right. He was my father that passed. Mm-hmm. He was my stepfather that left. Mm-hmm. A little different. It is a little different. Okay, let's go back to your mom now. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> That answers that, that. That slowed you down on that. <laughs> it did. It did. You're good, too. Uh, a little different answer than you thought you were going to get. Yeah. Be uh, careful of your questions. Why did your mom uh, suddenly decide, and you made it clear, it was your mom that decided, that you were going to take the family and leave New York? Yes. Okay. Do you want to back up to why your mom decided to up and leave Ireland years before? Yeah, I, I, yeah I'll, I'll uh, tiptoe into that one. All right. Uh, uh, my mother left Ireland in 1907 when she was 17 years old. Mm-hmm. You know, at that time, she was one of 11 children. And all the boys, all the five boys, had already moved, relocated either England or Ireland out of Ireland for political reasons. And my mom was left with her older sister and her youngest sister, Cecilia, who was a dwarf. Hmm. And in Ireland, at that time, that was kind of a prize to have a dwarf, you know, because <laughs> she was the youngest and the boldest and the smartest, and, and she was very colorful, and she was an anti-drinker, and she chased all of the brothers and everything else to stop drinking, and there's long histories there. Let's go back to mom. She's 17 years old, and she decides she's got to get out of Ireland. There's no money, and they're living in this little house. She decides, she gets recruited by the Franciscan Order of Nuns out of Italy. Hmm. It was in Ireland, in County Cork, recruiting prospective nuns. And wanted her to be a nun? Yeah. Okay. She became a nun. She joined the order. Wow. And went to Naples. And she was in Naples. It was six months, and she left there with them and went to Ellis Island. I have the she boat. was still a nun then? She was a nun, and she traveled with the, the, her group of new nuns going uh-huh. to America. So she arrives in, in America. She never ends up at the convent. What happened? She just stepped into life and ultimately married my father. So she, and they had the three boys. So she was, when she got off the boat at Ellis Island, she was wearing a habit. She was with a bunch of Italian nuns. And before you know it, it was like within a couple of weeks, she... Lost the habit? I, I, I doubt if she lost the, lost the habit. She probably never put the habit on when she got there. <laughs> Your mom, for the time, was kind of an entrepreneur of her own? You glad you, I'm glad you said that. I'm going to tell you the most sparkling part of this whole discussion we're having. She's in the United States, mm-hmm. okay? And she's married, and she has the three boys. The real interesting part of my mom is her leadership of the boys, and particularly of me. She's the one that had the courage. She's the one that wanted to go west. And in many, a lot of ways, it dearly cost her in a relationship. Her energy around protecting and seeing the future for her boys was very powerful. 
It's pretty clear to me from the time she came to America and had the boys, she, for the rest of her life, she pretty much lived for her boys, didn't she? It took me 23 months to become the ambassador to the U.S., ambassador to Ireland. I remember. It was a long, drawn-out war between the State Department and them trying to prevent me from going because their narrative was Ed Crawford was picked because he was a rich kid that gave him money you know, that he got from his grandfather, which was not the truth. But as soon as I got there, I wanted to go, in, for respect, go to Borby, the little community of my mom's, that mm -hmm. she left, okay? And she left in this little house that where she was one of 11, and Aunt Celia was the last one there. Did you go back to the house? I go back. We go to town in Quillen Borby, and it says, Borby, welcome back, son. Wow. And it, there's one priest thing. There's only about 700 people live in this town. Mm -hmm. And I'm standing there, you know, making a speech. Incidentally, I, I set up a foundation for, uh, for education of, of students in Bore B. Well, that's great. Small thing, but, you know, it's not Kent State, but to them, it's more than a Kent State. A woman taps me on the shoulder. She says, Ambassador, my name is Mary O'Sullivan. I said, well, hi, Mary O'Sullivan. And she says, my mother bought the, your original homestead from Aunt Cecilia's estate when she passed away. Would you like to see it? <laughs> Of course, I'd love to see it. But I got the news guy, and he says, I, I'm, I'm coming along. I says, no, you're not. You mm -hmm. know, I'm Good. sorry. I don't want to be rude. So I get there. I'm in the, in the house, and you, this, you, you're talking about 900 square feet with stairs going up and a little fireplace there. And her mother's there who's alive, who knew Aunt Cecilia, and they have cookies and everything else. So I have a couple of cookies. I'm looking at the fireplace, and I'm saying to myself, God, this is unbelievable. You know, and mm -hmm. I'm standing here, you know, this used to be a dirt floor five years ago. I mean, this is crazy, you know. Mm -hmm. question. The guy comes up, the Times guy got in. He comes up to me, he says, Ambassador, I got to ask you a question. And I'm hoping he's going to ask me a layup question that I can respond to rather than saying no. He says, why are you staring at the fireplace? I said, well, that's an interesting, I can go anywhere with that answer. That's a beautiful question. You couldn't ask me a better yeah. question. 95 years ago. My mother walked out that door over there, went to Italy, went up through Ellis Island, met my father. They had three boys. She sent one of her three boys, Edward Francis, back 95 years later as a U.S. ambassador to the Republic of Ireland. Good answer. <laughs> how, about, how about that for an Irish story? So I'm very proud of that. Did he Think write it that. up? Did you see the story that he wrote? Of course. We want to pick up around the time... Uh, your family is uh, living near what sticks in my mind is near the bottom of Fairmount Boulevard. Fairmount Boulevard, right? Uh, actually, Grandview Avenue. Grandview, right. Right there in the corner, there's been a Firestone station there when we arrived in 48, and it's still there, so it hasn't changed much the neighborhood. You're in a, a very modest living quarters near the bottom there on Grandview. Fairmount may be the most magnificent residential street in all of Greater Cleveland. Without question, it's uh, the homes were fascinating, and uh, the schools, the two, uh, Roxborough Elementary and uh, Roxborough Junior High School were there, and at that time, that's about one of the highest-rated public school systems in the country, along with Shaker Heights, so it was beautiful. A lot of the homes are connected to the success of the Cleveland Clinic, so a lot of mansions, big buildings. Just wonderful homes. Now, was that inspiring to you? Did you 
yearn to live in one of those homes and to be an achiever like so many of those people that lived on Fairmount were? It affected me the walk up the hill. I mean, this is as clear as uh, seeing this box in front of me. It had little effect on me, the fact, because we were confined to that early to that neighborhood. It's when I moved on to school there, and I had to walk from, on from Grandview Avenue up past Roxburgh, past all those beautiful homes and so forth. It did catch my attention. Mm-hmm. I saw your notes on so many of these, like, uh, flashpoint memories, and I wanted to hear your comment about some of them. Uh, who were the engineers? Well, the engineers was, you know, for what would be considered a, a motorcycle gang. I know, I know that's what it is, but yeah, I just, you know, they're usually the outlaws or or the Hells Angels or something. And here's how did they get the term the engineers. When I arrived at Cleveland Heights High School, this was a very highly energized academic. There was 486 in our class, and I was probably 483. This is the 50s. This is where rock and roll came in, and music was there. And uh, everyone at Cleveland Heights High School was on the way to college. They lived in those big houses. I wasn't envious about it. I wasn't jealous about it. I was, you know, happy to meet students like Clem Gunn and Lynn Varan and others. And they were very, very nice to us, but I still had to walk up the street, past all those big houses, into school. And did this provoke like a moment? The only thing I can think of is is Gone with the Wind and a Scarlett O'Hara standing by the devastated plantation, but swearing, and God is my witness. I, I will never, never go hungry again. Did you like see all these good things around you, Fairmont Boulevard and the pool and everything? And I understand you weren't envious. But did that cause uh, you to resolve to, I'm going to get to where I can enjoy things like this in my life? No, it was later, much later. Uh, you know, I was very happy being there and the school and the nice people. And it, I didn't feel neglected at that time. I didn't feel behind. You know, I had a great family and I had my brothers and so forth. And it was in a good school system. I appreciated that, you know. So, no, I wasn't envious of anything or anyone at that time. Good. For some reason, it came to pass that containers became very important in your life. And containers, you know, most people never think about it. Container, who cares about containers? Well, you need containers for just about everything. You sure do. Uh, a cup is a container. Your coffee cup is a container. You know, industrial containers came into my life, hiding and, and holding inside me. Okay, now you started working at Inland Steel Container. How did you get that job? First, it's high school, graduated from high school. Uh, then it was a wonderful time to be a young person at that time and rock and roll and the music. And we had the engineers and a group of individuals that were not really committed to much at that time other than having a good time. And a lot was not accomplished. And it's, it's the motivation comes later. The whole Cleveland Still Container story comes later. Okay, but now we're talking about uh, you're just out of high school. This is like late 1950s. 57. Up, up until 56, 57, it was pretty stale. We coalesced around the fact that we all liked Fords and Chevy convertibles, and we all had part-time jobs. So the engineers were connected to the cars and the motorcycles that we all loved. You know, that was a very secure and a wonderful time. So 
the motivation at that time I moved on I, I, I wanted to deal with the military service so I spent two years in the army in the 107th aviation company so I'm a veteran Gee, I wish I was back in the army. The army wasn't really bad at all. These were the uh, reserves? Yes. And in Ohio? Yeah, and at that time, they were calling up the reserves one after another with the terrible war in Asia. I think we were like second on the list, and uh, we, we actually never got called up. But in another interesting part of joining the military is I had a, a pretty successful bout as a boxer in the Golden Gloves for a couple of years. When I enlisted, and I had to go to Fort Knox. I arrived in Fort Knox, and I got called in the reception center where they were cutting your hair. <laughs> and everyone was cutting, buzzing their hair, and everyone was complaining about it. But it was big, long lines, and I'm about halfway to the razor, and my name is called. So I called over, and it was a, a Colonel Rochnott. And he was head of the boxing at uh, Fort Knox at the time. And uh, he had looked at my record and then asked me if I'd be interested in boxing for the team. Uh, no, my career's end. He says, well, then you're going to be first and you get your hair cut in about four minutes. And he transferred me out to Fort Lenwood in Arkansas, another colonel that had a boxing team. So time went by and I really hadn't decided to do something. You know, it's it, that impulse came later when, when I came out of the, of the service. I, I said, well, I, I think I should grow up here and go get a job. And I had this big stack of red hair, you know, on top of my head. So I applied for different jobs, but I was at John Carroll Night School at the time. And what year are we talking about now? Well, we're talking now, we're talking in the 60s, 62, 63. 62, okay. So you're out of the reserves. I'm out of the reserves. Hey, how'd you do as a boxer? I did very well. Uh, I, I tell a story. When I arrived at Fort Leonardwood, there were about 17 people in the boxing team already, and they it was a kind of a sloppy. So I ended up in a leadership role, trying to get everything under control. So I ended up having a uh, concept was, okay, we're going to have to box on Fridays, but no one can get hurt and, you know, let's be careful here. So half the group was from Arkansas. I organized that all, but everything was fine. I was fighting light heavy at the time. Two weeks before I get out, I'm, I'm ready to get released. And the, the colonel out there decides that he's going to take his best three boxers to Chicago to fight against the First Army. Mm -hmm. I said, whoa, that's, that's not a good idea. You're going to fight Jim Rex. I said, who's Jim Rex? He says, well, he's their middleweight, light heavyweight. Champion. Champion. Uh -huh. So our flyweight got knocked out in the first round because this was Chicago. This They were taking this seriously. Mm -hmm. you know? And then the heavyweight, he lasted two rounds and he got really punished. Tony comes over to my corner with the bandage and he says, Red, you go look at this guy. He's going he's gonna to kill you. So at this point, between the Golden Gloves and everything, I had about 20 fights. And I didn't lose much. So I look around and he's look at his arms. And I look over across the ring and this guy's arms were below his knees by about three inches. <laughs> he said, he's going to hit you before you get out of the corner. And I said, look at him. But this was five rounds. And I said, I, I, I can run for five rounds. That guy's not that fast, I don't believe. So I went out. The first round was uneventful because he was just playing with me as it turned out to be because things changed in the second round because the only really good punch I had was a left hook. And at any time I had knocked somebody out, I thought it was the same same shot. 
I wasn't looking for it, but it showed up in the second round, early in the second round. So I, I shot it at him. He pulled his head back like a professional boxer, spun it around and hit me to the side of the head. And I said, I got to get out of this ring alive. The third round, he hit me hard enough that went down. And I've always bothered me. And it's just, I have a chance. It's, it's like owning up to something. I think I could have gotten up. I didn't, you know, so... Mm-hmm. Yeah, you know. Better safe than sorry, though. Yeah, well, that's safe. I wasn't thinking that way. I said, I just was, I just knew he was big, fast, long arms, and I was going to lose. So it came back out. Now I come back and I get into John Carroll Night School and really start to think about education. And because everyone in my high school class and all my friends at Cleveland Heights all went to college. It was, there was no money in our family. There was no, there was no, there was no one that had ever been to college. So chapter two ends with the recounting of Red, Crawford's brief career as a boxer in the Army in the early 1960s. The lessons in tenacity and creativity from his mother, plus the courage and endurance learned in the boxing ring, set the stage for the launch of Ambassador's business career in 1962. You can hear it firsthand in Aspire, chapter three heroes, and villains. I'm Josh Booth. Thanks for listening.